From USA Today and number one national best-selling author Samantha M. Bailey comes this tense psychological thriller about a mother who must keep watch at all times if she wants to keep her family safe. Sarah Goldman, mother of six-year-old Jacob, is relieved to move across country. She has a lot she wants to leave behind, especially Holly Monroe, the pretty 22-year-old babysitter she and her husband, Daniel, hired to take care of their young son last summer. It started out as a perfect arrangement. Sarah had a childminder her son adored, and Holly found the mother figure she'd always wanted. But Sarah's never been one to trust very easily, and one day she saw something so shocking that all she could think of was to flee. This spine-tingling, page-turning novel is psychological suspense at its very best. A chilling look at trust, voyeurism, and obsession in the modern age, and how far we will go to watch out for those we love. Samantha and I discuss her journey to getting published, how the plot came to her, and her process in keeping readers turning those pages. Not only do I love your books, but I love you as a person because you are so real and it comes through in your novels. And it's not just because I know you, it's because I know your wonderful writing voice and I, I see all the layers as they are peeled back. And I appreciate that as a reader. I look at your protagonist, Sarah, you know, who's this loving soul whose life revolves around her only son, Jake, and who protects him so fiercely. But there's a deep set concern for him that comes from a past incident, which many mothers can relate to. I want you to explain what that is and how you came up with that idea for the trigger. So, uh, first of all, I have to say, um, it is so good to see you. And because we know each other so well, you know, seven, eight years every January together for a week in the beach house. Can't believe I haven't seen you for two and a half years. Um, I wonder if perhaps you might be a little scared of me the next time you go to the beach house together now that you've read two of my books. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it makes me wonder what you think of in your in your dream state. Or how many and cameras. walk in your sleep. How many yeah, cameras, cameras I have on you all. <laughs> you can watch me drool as I sleep. <laughs> Maybe I do. do. Um, so I will start with Sarah. So. Who she is is informed not just by an incident with her babysitter and the summer and, and everything that happened that precipitated her move from Vancouver to Toronto, but loss that she experienced before she had Jacob. She lost her father when she was 13 years old. So that was the first loss. So I think when you're that young, at such a penultimate time and you lose one of your parents, well, it traumatizes you absolutely and it changes you forever. And I think it can make you very fearful of loss, depending on the type of person that you are and what happens to your family after, because after her family, they were broke. She didn't get to experience her youth the way she wanted to experience her youth because she had work and she had to help her family. And then she lost uh, her first baby, a daughter uh, in her second trimester. And so before her son Jacob was born. So there's another loss and that's a loss of a child. And that's a loss. That's just such an immense, immense loss. So there's so much going on for her when she has Jacob and she stays home with him and he becomes her world. He becomes 
everything to her so that the mere idea of anything happening to him, big or small, breaks her. It really breaks her to the point where she realizes that she needs to find herself again, to separate herself from her son, hires this babysitter, Holly Monroe, to help for the summer so she can return to her passion, which is photography. And then at first, the arrangement with Holly seems absolutely fabulous and wonderful. She does, Sarah's a voyeur, so she does watch Holly. She does have nanny cams. And then she sees something that, that she can't unsee. And her world is shattered again because all her trust is shattered. She doesn't know what's going on. And she has to then move her family as far away from this babysitter as possible, only to move into her new house in Toronto and find human cameras there and wonder if Holly is not so far behind after all. At first, there's sort of this um, idyllic period that both Sarah and Holly enjoy together. Um, Holly views Sarah as a sort of a substitute mom. And there's reasons for that. And I think you've drawn Holly out pretty well. I mean, here she is, a pre-med college student. Her father owns a large pharmaceutical company. He's already planned for Holly to be, you know, part of the family business, which is something that Holly despises on so many levels. She has a darkness to her because of the pressure that's on her and because of her own past issues and her own circumstance how her dynamic with her father, her dynamic with her stepmother, Lisette, who to me is one of the darkest characters I think you've ever like drawn. Mm. I mean, you see Lisette and, you know, every time she came on the page, I wanted to wince and I wanted to wince for Holly. What you've done truly well is that you've got two women who under normal circumstances, I'm talking about Holly and Sarah, could have had a wonderful friend-mentor relationship, and yet because of their own personal issues, their own hurt, their own internal pain, they've kind of like, they're moving in tandem, but they're also at cross-purposes. Describe a little bit about Holly's darkness and where it comes from. I want to take you with me everywhere I go now. <laughs> <laughs> I love you see not only into my words, but into authors' words, their intentions, their hard work, uh, the layers that, you know, we wanted to put in there. You have such good perception of the intentions behind these characters uh, that it means so much to me because you've captured everything that I really, really wanted to put across on the page and off because there's so much that's not on the page as well. You know, when you're writing, it's such a fine line between what you, what you keep and what you take out. So it's as tightly paced as possible. Holly's darkness. So I love Holly. Holly to me is this character so desperate for love, so desperate for acceptance, so desperate to be seen for who she really is rather than who everyone wants her to be that it has led her down so many different dark and dangerous paths that she doesn't want to be on, but has no guidance where else to go. Her mother died in childbirth with her. And there's a guilt there for her that that was her fault. And of course, of course, you know, it's not that, you know, when you're born that way and you've lost your mother, so you have no mother figure. 
And then all you have is your father, but your father is an extremely busy um, owner of a, a pharmaceutical empire. And then suddenly you have a stepmother who doesn't really care about you at all, uses you for her own purposes. And because Holly is beautiful, she is seen as someone to be used because of her looks, as opposed to the fact that she is quite brilliant, quite fierce, quite driven, and has so many passions and desires of her own that she's not allowed to pursue or just doesn't feel that she can. She doesn't have the confidence to do it. She is a stepsister that she adores so much, and they have a very close relationship, but she has a lot of guilt there because she is the, the chosen daughter in a lot of ways, the one chosen to work in the family business where, as her stepsister is not, there's so much responsibility placed on her shoulders at such a young age. She's only 22. And she too has not really been able to have a youth. She too has never been able to be carefree. And you know, that, that time when you don't really have responsibilities. So she does share that with, with Sarah. And like you said, there, it's almost like there, there are two trains, you know, maybe running, yeah, along the same tracks and they both veer off the tracks at the same time. And then they're on a collision course toward each other. And so that's very much the relationship between the two of them and under different circumstances. I think, yes, that it would very much have been like a mentor, a mentee, even, you know, yeah, like the, the daughter that, that Sarah does not have and Holly, yes, the mother, and she does not have a very beautiful, special relationship that unfortunately it turns very toxic. Yeah, I think it's um, interesting that, you know, you have Holly, whose mother died in childbirth. And then, of course, you have Sarah, who's who lost a daughter through a miscarriage. So, you know, they're drawn together because of loss, even though maybe they don't know about each other's loss at at this point. I mean, we know about it as the reader, but they don't know about that. I also feel that you've made Holly the type of person who, because of her own little secrets, looks for secrets in other people, which is how she comes about learning some of the secrets that Sarah and her husband Daniel are hiding from each other. And I think that's a pivotal point in the whole story, because here you have these two people who so want to trust each other over someone they both love, who is Jake, and I'm talking about the babysitter, Holly, and the mom, Sarah. I mean, they both love Jake. He's sort of the, he's the connecting point for both of them. And at the same time, there's a bit of them that is mistrusting. They don't trust because of their own pain and hurt, because of Sarah's fear of losing another child in any way, shape, or form, which really does bring a lot of her fears to the forefront and, and kind of exaggerates them. But at the same time, you've got Holly, who is bruised. I mean, she's emotionally bruised. She's a very smart, beautiful young woman who is being used in so many ways. And so you've got her distrusting as well. So for her, the power is finding out something on somebody else, even if it's somebody that she wants to admire. Now, I love the fact that Sarah also has her own secrets. Because I think that kind of brings it full circle with everyone in her life. She is going to hold on to these as part of her fear factor. And that's where I think things kind of culminate 
in how you've built this story. Everybody's sort of like at cross purposes. You're building sort of like this, um, it's almost like a quilt, or I should say, you know, I want to say a potholder because I see the loops, you know, the loops inter- intercutting. I, 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 I'm not even sure what a potholder is. I don't mean I, I, hear, <laughs> I hear quilt and I think, oh God, sewing. I don't even know. Yeah, no. <laughs> I understand exactly what you mean. <laughs> You obviously didn't grow up in the South making potholders as part of your camp experience. No, no. We make tie-dye here in Canada. I don't know. Oh, well, you little hippie little child, hippie you. <laughs> so things come to a head, I feel, when some of these secrets kind of reveal themselves. But Holly kind of pushes it forward because she feels she's protecting Dan and Sarah where in essence, she may be actually pulling them apart. Or, as it, you know, I'm not going to give any spoilers yeah, away. So it's really hard. <laughs> I know, I know. You know, I keep thinking, okay, well, how do I tell how this book interacts so well with how you layered it, and then the house of cards comes falling down? Yes. You can do a better job of telling yes. it. No, it's, it's so hard when you know not to reveal, right? Like it's, it's extremely difficult. I, I'm very careful what I say because it is, it is quite an intricate story. It's quite an intricate story. There are quite a few secrets and, and they get, you know, peeled back and revealed slowly one by one. And so secrets is, is a major part of the book. Watching, I think at its core, the book I would say is about identity and perception. So who we are, who we want to be, how other people see us. and how we see them. So we have the two women who are watching each other. The male character, Daniel, the husband, he doesn't really watch. He's not nearly as observant as the two women are. I would, I would go as far as calling him clueless in a lot of ways. Yes. He's so wrapped up in hiding his own secrets. I, don't want to be sexist in the least, but I, I think there is women's intuition. There is this sense of women's intuition. And that's a, also a very big part of the book that Sarah intuitively knows something is wrong. And that's what's making her paranoid and anxious and so fearful and, and distrustful because intuitively, instinctually, she knows. She just doesn't know what it is, which is making her nuts because she can't figure out who is lying to her? Are they all lying to her? What are the secrets everyone's keeping? Where the book starts is not where it ends, which is you've got a great opening chapter where a family is moving into a new home. Obviously, it's Sarah and Daniel, but they're running away. They're not running towards something, but away from something. And, you know, within the first hour of being in the house, Sarah feels that they haven't run far enough. She feels they're still being watched. And you've also have these two voices going at the same time. You've got Sarah in real time, and you've got Holly in past tense. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily first person, but we are in her point of view. We are in her her line of sight. Mm -hmm. And we see what she sees and feel what she feels. You did a beautiful job in me not knowing, because we as the reader are getting to see two different points of view, we know that inherently these women aren't necessarily evil. Mm -hmm. We all have our 
bad points, and they have theirs. And because Sarah's a photographer, and because she's so insular herself, she looks at other people covertly. Well, Holly does that too. When two friends find out that they've been watching each other, I think that's when, you know, you have the issue of trust crumbling. And I think that's where their lives all start falling apart. How did you come up with the process or did you know immediately that you were going to use the process of dual point of view? Did you know how you were going to structure it or did you come to it by fault? You know, like, did you decide, oh, this one's got to be real time. Oh, this person, she's sort of giving us the backstory. I want to know how you, how you got there. So right before the pandemic, we were in California together. And yes. there you were tapping me on the couch like you always do. I think you're the only person I know in complete chaos. I had to learn how to do it. But I'm constantly writing complete chaos and shut it all out. But you can shut it all out and then actually have, you know, meaningful conversations at the same time while your fingers are still typing away. It's, it, it boggles my mind. So in that beach house in uh, California was really where I was just, I think, beginning to, to formulate that outline. I put together very detailed outlines and I like 15 to 17 page outlines of the first, second, third act, all the scenes, uh, you know, in, in brief, all the scenes in brief, who the characters are, what their backstories are, their motivations, their arcs, their growth, the twists, the beats, the clues. So I knew the first thing I come up with when I, when I'm writing a book is the premise. After uh, the premise, it's usually the first line in my head. I need to see that first line in my head to figure out the tone of the book, where it's going to go, the kind of pacing I want. And then I figure out from whose points of view will the book be from? Um, how am I going to structure that? You know, in both Woman on the Edge, my debut and Watch Out for Her, I did do the same structure. I hesitated because I thought, do I want to do the same thing again? And I always want to stay true to my voice and stay true to the story and it fit the story. So I had to do it. I felt I had to do it where I have two women and I knew that Sarah's point of view was going to be first person present. I wanted it with her as immediate as possible to feel like we were right there with her, having as much action as possible, seeing it as it happens. Holly, when I started, she was third person past, but it was close third, close third because I wanted to be with her. I wanted us to be in her head, but I wanted us not to be sure exactly what she is really thinking because she herself does not know what she is really thinking. She is young. She is confused. She doesn't know what's happening. She is scared. She feels guilty. She knows she's getting herself into danger and she knows that she's destroying relationships. She doesn't know how to stop it. So I, I made that choice very, very carefully. But then I did change it to third person presence in talks with my editor because we felt that it flowed better. We, we wanted that immediacy. That we wanted to feel, again, more of Holly as it happens, even though it was in the past. Well, I think it worked beautifully, and I'm glad you didn't go against your own. I think you know in, intuitively, I know I do this too, I play with different different tenses. 
but then I know immediately where I want to go. And I'm glad you didn't allow, oh, I did this in the first book, so I'm not going to do it in the second book. I'm glad you didn't allow that to stop you from going what naturally felt comfortable for this story. Because I think it has to work for the story. And in this type of story, I can't even imagine how it couldn't. I mean, you wanted to be in both these women's heads. You wanted to see if one was playing the other. You wanted to see that there was a raison d'etre, a goal that both of them had. And ironically, the goal on both sides was altruistic until trust breaks them apart. And it wasn't even trust of each other necessarily. There are other people at play here that were breaking them apart and they didn't even realize it. And I think that's the true secret of the book that we will not be giving away. Uh, yes, no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> and what tanked Samantha M. Bailey's career? It was her interview with Josie Brown on the audit. <laughs> 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 Sam, you're always, always, always a great interview. And it's because you, if your books weren't so well written, if you weren't so fun to read, I don't think we would be having so much fun talking about them. No, it goes back to, I actually want to go back to something else you said earlier, but no, it goes back to the fact that I am such a huge fan of yours that how can you not just want to hang out with me because I fangirl over you so hard. Oh, Josie Brown. I can't believe I'm a friend with Josie Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we certainly have a mutual admiration society. Oh, that's awesome. It is. It's cool to have someone that you love to read and love to hang with. Oh, and just love from, like, you know, depths of my soul. But I was going to go back to something you said. It was really interesting that you know as a writer intuitively what you need to do. And I think Sometimes I have to be very careful not to get stifled by my outline because my characters know what they want to do and, and, and they're leading me and I, I'm almost like, but no, that's not in the outline. So I, I sometimes, yeah, I have to make sure I separate myself and I really organically follow the process. And I think when you get scared when you're writing, um, when you get that little feeling of, I don't know if I should be doing this, then you know you have to do it. And it's kind of, it's, it's really a good thing to follow is, is to face that fear. It's really hard, but but I think if yeah, we all have that moment where we know uh, in our gut what we have to do, but we just have to get over that hurdle of of terror to do it. <laughs> That's what makes a great writer: the fear, the fear of <laughs> yeah, failure, true. yeah, the fear that you're not paying off your story or yeah. your character, and um, I think that's what makes you a great writer is that you're not afraid to go deeper and to say, it's not right yet. I have to make it right. I know how long your first book took. And uh, <laughs> yes, but it paid off. It, it paid off. It did. And, and you, it did. everything you've learned from that first book, uh, which I would say this to other authors totally, it doesn't hurt to spend the time to make sure that it sings. And some people write faster than others, but that doesn't mean they write better than others. And uh, some people write fast and they can write good. But, you know, it's training your mind and training your your thoughts. It's your process. It showed in this book. And I think you had a really solid foundation in the last book. But I can't wait for the next book either. Oh, Josie, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I learned so much. I've learned so much. I've been in this business for 20 years. As you know, this is the sixth book I've written and the second only to hit bookstore shelves. It's been such a long process of learning and I'm not done. I am not done. 
as I'm now working on, on my third book, I realize how much I've learned, but still how much more I have, you know, yet to learn, which is the most, that to me is the most exciting part. Everything I still get to learn about writing. I think, yes, for me, you know, I'm a masochist. I love nothing more <laughs> than to be torn apart in my drafts. Not once the book is published, not my favorite thing, but, but you know, but when I'm in the draft process, I will be the first to tell you that I know my draft is missing something. I just don't know what it is. I know my first drafts are not, you know, for public consumption. Oh God, no, 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 they're a mess. My first drafts are a mess. And then I, I build. I think I'm, I'm a writer who's a builder. There are writers who can knock out a solid gold first draft and I would love to crawl inside their brains because it's not, it's not me. I, I am a builder. I am a reviser. I am a rewriter. And I am someone who really does mean critique partners and an editor and someone to go in there and really, you know, cut, 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 cut. And when I get a manuscript back with red lines, I, I can't even explain the most wonderful, delicious feeling that it brings me because I know that the next iteration will be even better. Well, whatever iteration ends up being in our hands, <laughs> I'm sure we will be enthralled. Oh. Sam, thank you for everything, for beautiful books and um, a beautiful friendship. Now we're both crying. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh my gosh, I this means so much to me. You as so many other authors have during the pandemic. You were doing this though before. You've been doing this for a very, very long time. But perhaps you've been doing it even more during the pandemic, giving authors a stage, giving authors a place to be able to um, promote, talk about our work um, when it was, was so hard. It is getting easier now, but when it was so hard for us. So that I appreciate, but your friendship means the absolute world to me. You are my sister. You are the sister of my heart. Writer friends, they're like, no one else in the world. You talk to my books with me like these people are real because to me they are real. You understand the work and the pain and the sorrow and the excitement, all of it that went into creating this. So thank you for having me on the show. Always and always a pleasure. I love you, baby. <laughs> Watch out for her as in bookstores now. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.